Hi, Gary Zacharias here with the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm going back for another look at a book by J.P. Moreland and uh, Gary Habermas. And I'll tell you, you get those two together, that you know you're going to get a good book. I like both of these authors. Uh, they've written individually and they've written a book together called Immortality. It's got a new name now, so if you ever want to find a copy and you want to find a used copy, uh, an older copy, this thing was copyrighted in 1992, it's uh, called Immortality, The Other Side of Death, but it's got a new name now, and I haven't seen the new edition of it. It's called Beyond Death. Beyond Death. So this book covers the evidence for life after death, what near-death experiences tell us, and uh, we covered that in the previous podcast on this book, and the case for the existence of heaven and hell. And I thought I would take that chapter. It's so much more pleasant, so much more uplifting and inspiring to talk about heaven and what what's ahead. Gary, Al, um, Randy Alcorn has a great book on heaven. Boy, just it's so good for your spirit to read that. But we need to talk about hell. Uh, the society today is just horrified by the idea of a hell. And uh, so I, w I would like to cover this chapter because we need to talk about it. It's in the Bible. Jesus talked a lot about it. But as uh, Habermas and Marlon say, nobody wants to talk about it, much less dwell on it, and they hope it'll never come up. But uh, it says that doesn't get rid of the reality. And I said the, the concept of hell has been really critical individually and communally. And he said, especially in Judaism and Christianity. And you say, really, in the Old Testament? Yeah. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Daniel says in Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then the, what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus spoke a lot about hell. He advised his disciples not to fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew ten twenty-eight. What does Paul say? Well, the great missionary Paul said, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Well, there are some reasons that they say that nobody wants to talk about hell, and frankly, that it's just kind of disappeared in our society. And they said one reason is we got the idea that the only thing that's real is whatever our senses can tell us. And we've got a bunch of anti-supernatural ideas going on in our society. Uh, when hell comes up, people say, well, well wait a minute. You can't see it. You can't weigh it. You can't measure it. You got scientism, that truth is discovered by science alone, and you can't discover hell through science. It can't be proven by the scientific method. And then you got physicalism that says it's not part of this physical universe, so therefore it's, it's not real. So we've ended up with a very tolerant society today, and a lot of people think the only thing to do is just be sincere in your beliefs, just oh, we're all headed the same way, we're just getting there differently, and God's going to overlook that. He's going to accept us. Just the idea that we were passionate, we were um, sincere in our beliefs. And he said, you know, another major factor against the belief in hell is a cultural shift in values. And what do they mean by that? Well, we don't appreciate hard values, hard virtues like holiness and justice and righteousness so what are we in, uh, fired up about in this society? Love, mercy, kindness. Now, nothing wrong with those. Those are great. Those are wonderful virtues. But 
We don't want to talk about the hard things in life, being holy. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to practice justice. He wants us to be righteous. So the idea of hell has become outdated. So I'm going to move along a little faster here because I would like to cover this. Well, I don't know. There's so much here. Maybe I'll end up doing two podcasts on this. So let's just see how it goes. They have a section um, right after the opener on what the scriptures say about hell. Uh 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that people are going to pay a penalty of eternal destruction. Matthew 25 says uh, he's going to say, talking about he, God's going to say, depart from me, and you're going to go into the eternal fire. And so it said, you know, you can see the essence of hell is the end of a road that's gone away from God, it's gone away from love, it's gone away from anything of real value. It's a banishment from the presence of God and the kind of life that we are supposed to live. And it says the Bible describes hell primarily in a relational term. It's away from God. It's banishment from his presence, from his purposes. It's, it's away from his followers. It's a freely chosen destination. It's not a question of God just reaching out and grabbing us and tossing us into hell. We chose it. That's the path we decided to take. It's whatever we decide to believe and do in this life, it sets us on a road, heading us toward a destination in the next life. What's hell like? It's a place of shame, sorrow, and regret, and anguish. And it's not produced by God. He's not a cosmic torturer. Yes, they say anguish and torment will exist. And because we're going to have both a body and a soul in the resurrected state, we could have mental as well as physical anguish. But what kind of pain is it? Is it God putting us on a spit and roasting us? No. It's going to be due to the shame and sorrow because... We will have we will realize a finite uh, I'm sorry a, a final ultimate unending banishment from God and from His kingdom. Hell wasn't really part of the original creation. It's not what God made and declared good. It's a later addition that was meant to accommodate the banishment of the evil one and His rule over fallen angels and people who rebelled. Now, what's it like? What does the Bible say? What kind of words? does the Bible use to describe this place? In the Old Testament, Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. Sometimes it means the grave, but it can refer to the netherworld, the realm of the dead, kind of a grim, dark, shadowy mode of existence. You can see it in Psalm um, 143, verse 3. You can see it in Job 10. You could talk to others there. Isaiah 14 talks about it. You could be reunited with friends there. That's in Genesis 15 and 37. It, it was pictured with two as two compartments. Uh, one was called Abraham's bosom. We see that in Luke 16, or sometimes called paradise. And so Sheol was um, split into two parts for unbelievers and believers. And in the New Testament, we have Hades. That's kind of taken the place of Sheol. And apparently, if you read 1 Peter 3.18 and Ephesians 4.8, that Christ's resurrection changed the nature of Hades. Before the resurrection, Hades was a place including the high and the low, you know, the good and the bad. But after Christ's resurrection, Hades becomes identified with the lowest part of, of Sheol alone. And so it becomes now seen as a place of banishment, just a temporary place while the unbeliever is in an intermediate state before a resurrection to, the, to his body. You can see that in Second Peter 2, and that will be done away with. Hades will be done away with at the final judgment. That's Revelation 20. 
But during this intermediate state, people are going to be conscious, they're going to be disembodied, they're going to be awaiting the final resurrection of their bodies and the final judgment. The New Testament also uses a couple of other words, Tartarus, that's Second Peter 2, Gehenna, Lake of Fire. Now that seems to be the final state of the banished that's brought about at that final judgment at the end of the world. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23. We see it again in Revelation 20. In Gehenna, people are going to have bodies as well as souls. That's Matthew 5 and 10. And they will experience conscious, everlasting banishment from heaven. Now, I think this is really interesting to know. The Bible describes hell's occupants as having different degrees of punishment. Because there are different degrees of rewards for believers in heaven, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, there are going to be different degrees of judgment and shame according to the works that have been done there. Now, let me give you a few verses there, and you can check this out for your own. Matthew 11, 21, and a few following verses. Luke 12, 47 and 48. Matthew 23, 23. And they said even maybe James 3, 1, Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13. Well, so here come a couple of questions. People have some questions about this biblical picture. Is hell a place? Is it out there in space? And they said, most likely not. The language appears to be metaphorical in the Bible. God doesn't really have a right hand. He doesn't sit on a throne that's spatially located somewhere. I mean, he is omnipresent, and he's spaceless. So they say, similarly, this intermediate state known as Hades is, is real, but it's in some kind of non-spatial mode of reality that's suited for disembodied existence. So uh, I think that's an interesting point. Well, here's another question that people ask. Are the flames in hell literal, physical things? Or are they symbolic? And he says, I say he, I mean Habermas and uh, uh, Marlin say that they believe hell, the flames of hell are symbolic. Okay, so once again, if you're picturing flames and people roasting and screaming out in agony, that may not be the picture. Now, you don't want to bet the farm on this, but I think that's probably accurate too. That makes sense to me. Metaphors are used in scripture. They depict God and the future life. They talked about metaphors when they had a chapter on heaven. And they said, you know, if you take the ideas of hell as physical and literal, you got, you got some problems. Hell is called a place of fire and darkness. How can there be darkness if the fire is literal? It's also described as a bottomless pit and a dump. How could it be both? Scripture calls God a fire and says that Christ and his angels will return surrounded in flaming fire. But God's not a physical object as is fire. So flames are often used symbolically. They're, they're divine judgment. And in hell, flames are going to depict human shame and punishment, sorrow and anguish. So kind of a summary at this point is that the Bible pictures hell as Upon death, some people are going to go into a different non-spatial mode of existence. They'll be conscious, and they will await the resurrection of their bodies. And at that time, they'll be banished and secured in hell, where they will experience unending conscious exclusion from God, his people, and anything of value. Oh, that's grim, isn't it? There'll be conscious sorrow, shame, and anguish to differing degrees, depending on the person's life on earth. At this point, they said, why don't we uh, bring up the idea of purgatory? That's a Catholic doctrine. Uh, it says Protestants 
can't really accept the idea of purgatory. So here's the notion. Purgatory is the idea of temporal punishment. So according to Catholic tradition, it's a place where certain people, not everybody, but certain people go right after death to prepare themselves for heaven. It is miserable. There is suffering. There is punishment. And people are punished there for certain sins that they committed in this life. They make reparation. They make amends for those sins through repentance and penance to gain God's forgiveness. And then they're purified and they're made righteous again in God's sight. So that's the idea. Well, it says, where do you get this idea? A major support for it is in 2 Maccabees 12. Well, here's the problem with that. 2 Maccabees is a disputed book in Christian circles. It was written after the Old Testament, but prior to the New Testament. And Protestants think that it's not really part of the true canon of Holy Scripture. It, it could have some historical validity. And I did read Maccabees a long time ago, and it's got some great history as far <clears throat> as far as overthrowing some of the uh, secular rulers at that time. Maccabees does have some really interesting historical teaching, but it's disputed and considered to be apocryphal. It may have some historical validity, but it's not divinely inspired, at least according to Protestants. And then they said, you know, beyond that, the idea of purgatory goes against biblical teaching. The Bible doesn't say anything about that and nothing about being purged after death. Now, what does the Bible say that Christ did everything that was necessary to earn our entrance into God's presence at death? Paul says in Philippians 3.9 that his right standing with God was not something he earned or secured through some kind of penance or reparation. And Paul also in Philippians 1 and in 2 Corinthians 5, he says at death, we go immediately to be in Christ's presence. There's no stopping off place. You're supposed to joyously anticipate this. But purgatory is not a joyous anticipation. It's pretty grim stuff. So if purgatory is understood as a temporary, incomplete, joyful existence that involves growth and re-embodiment in heaven, then we could accept it. But that's not really what the Catholics teach. Let me do just one more section here. This is so powerful, I may break this. I think I will break it into maybe two or even three podcasts because people wrestle with this concept of hell, if they think about it at all, and they should. The next section of the book is uh, called The Justification of Belief in Hell. And uh, it says, Heaven is the kind of place where people with wrong beliefs and a bad will would not fit, and heaven must be freely and non-coercively chosen, which is, I think, a really good point. That's uh, coming from an Oxford philosopher, Richard Swinburne. So he says, uh, why are people with wrong beliefs left out? Because they wouldn't want to be there even. Uh, if you're going to have a supreme happiness, it's got to be a deep happiness. It's got to be obtained by freely choosing to do those things. So deep happiness is found in pursuing a task that you think is valuable and you have true beliefs and you only want to be doing those things. And so you, you want a friendship with God. You want to learn to care for others. You want to care for God's creation. Heaven isn't a reward for good action. It's a home for good people. And only people of a certain sort would really be suited for life in heaven. They go on to quote more from Swinburne. Can God force the bad to become good? No. Why? Because he respects our freedom. He can't twist our character and, and change it some way. He respects our freedom. It would actually be unloving. They call it almost like a divine rape to force people to accept heaven and God if they really didn't want them. When God allows people to say no to him, he's respecting them. He is giving them dignity. 
So the, the point that Swinburne brings up is that heaven is suitable for people of a certain sort, those who really do want to be there, and their decision to go there has to be made freely. Well, what is hell then? It's a place for people of a different character who freely choose to be there. So God is actually a preserver of persons. So one way God respects us is to sustain us in existence and not annihilate us. I mean, think about annihilation. If God just burned us up, uh, you know, all the bad when they died, then it's destroying creatures of intrinsic value. So God is respecting people. He's honoring their free, autonomous choices, even if their choices are wrong, just like we do with our kids growing up. God can't force his love on people and coerce them to choose him, and he can't annihilate them because they have great value. What's the other option? Quarantine. And that's what hell is. So a couple of other things to consider. Hell, uh, concerning hell. First, some of God's attributes seem to demand hell. Justice demands retribution. God is a God of justice. It would be unjust to allow evil to go unpunished. We talk about that all the time in this life. We want justice, except we don't really want it for us. We want it for others. So hell is in keeping with God's justice. Also, God's holiness requires him to separate himself from evil. Now, what is hell? It's quarantine. It is a separation from God. So it's in keeping with his holiness. And we don't think much about holiness this day. Yeah. And then finally, they said, third point, the doctrine of hell gains support from a notion called the defeat of evil. So we want to get rid of evil. So even though the suffering is bad of people in hell, it says, considered in and of itself, it'd be better if they were in heaven, but such a bad state is defeated if it's part of a larger purpose that's good and has hell as an essential part. So what's that larger whole? It's the creation of free individuals who can freely desire, and they can choose heaven based on true beliefs, or they can reject it. Then they have enough intrinsic value to make annihilation wrong. And then there's the justice and holiness of God. So there are some of the reasons the biblical doctrine of hell is morally and intellectually justifiable to Habermas and Moreland. I think what I'll do is stop at this point. They continue in the next part of this chapter about objections that people raise to this idea of hell. And uh, we'll cover that next time and some other things. This is just way too important to uh, get done with it in a real short uh, podcast. So again, thank you for listening. It's a hard subject and... Um, I don't even want to think about it. It's just too awful to comprehend. But it's in the Bible. It's something we need to wrestle with, and we need to provide answers to people who question us about it. Well, thank you for a serious issue and, and uh, listening to this podcast, and we'll do the next part in the following podcast.